Welcome to Shoot Like a Girl, a podcast featuring interviews with extraordinary military women from around the world who push their limits on and off duty. I'm your host, Kate Stewart, and this is episode number 31. Today's guest is Liz McConaughey. Liz was the longest serving female crewman on the Royal Air Force Chinook fleet spanning a 17 year career. She deployed two times to Iraq and 10 times to Afghanistan in support of Operation Herrick. Upon leaving the Royal Air Force in 2019, Liz slowly became unraveled after a series of traumatic events that compounded her PTSD. This led to her trying to end her life in August of 2020. She survived and went into the veterans' mental health care system. During this time, she began writing poetry and subsequently an autobiography to help her get her thoughts out of her head. Chinook Kruchik was released in September 2022 and went on to the Amazon bestseller list within three weeks. She is now an ambassador for mental health and specifically PTSD with veterans. Liz stands as an example that PTSD does not have to be your identity. It can simply be a chapter of your life that can be learned from and most importantly, moved on from. Okay, Liz, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. And you're actually my first guest from the UK. So I'm very excited about that. Yay! Oh, well, thank you for having me. I just read your book a couple of weeks ago, which was really awesome. So I'm really glad that you responded after I reached out to you. Oh, I'm glad you I'm glad you read it and I'm glad you enjoyed it. I think you did. So um yeah, no, I'm really pleased to hear that. And I'll post a link to everything afterwards. So if people want to go check that out, then hopefully after hearing your interview, they'll be pumped up to read it. Oh, I hope so. So where did you grow up? So I grew up um, in a little town in Northern Ireland, uh, which was about 13 miles from Belfast. So probably some of your listeners may have heard of Belfast, Northern Ireland. And um, yeah, I grew up not so far from there, really. Pretty much after the troubles had finished, the, all the troubles that you hear about in Northern Ireland kind of were in my very young days. And by the time I was kind of at high school, most of that had kind of died down a little bit. So yeah, it was quite quiet, luckily for me. <laughs> Okay, awesome. Yeah, I I actually got married in Ireland just because we wanted a destination wedding. So we went up to visit Belfast. And then we also went to go see Giants Causeway after that. Oh, it's amazing there. Lovely place. It's such a nice area. And everyone is so friendly. I mean, I'm from the east coast of Canada, which kind of has a reputation for being friendly, but it's nothing compared to that area of the world. Oh, and where did you get married? In Dublin, just outside of Dublin. Oh, nice. Lovely. Dublin's good. Very good. What was your childhood like growing up? What sort of activities were you into? So I don't come from a military background at all. I um I kind of went to a normal, well, it was not called a high school. It's actually a grammar school. So they kind of really focus on academics, really. And um, uh, yeah, my, my brother joined the army whenever he was 18. And that was kind of the first exposure I had to anything to do with the military. Um, I went along with him when he was doing his barb test, which is the entrance test for the British military. Uh, sorry, I was sat in the careers office while he was in doing his exam and there was a magazine on the table. On the magazine, it had a picture of a, a helicopter crewman hanging out the side of a helicopter. And 
I remember asking the guy in uniform, what's this job, this guy on the rope outside the helicopter? And he said, well, it's not a rope. It's a wire for starters. And the job title is helicopter crewman. And I was like, that is the coolest job ever. (laughs) So, and I mean, I was only about 16 then. So that was kind of my first like hook to the the military. And I was just sold. I just wanted to do it and wanted to join and get away from Northern Ireland, really, because although the troubles had finished, it was very, it was still very much... um, small island syndrome I guess and I wanted to see the big wide world and travel so uh, I ended up joining on my 19th birthday joining the Royal Air Force. Oh excellent and so before you saw this picture what did you envision yourself doing when you grew up? So I didn't really have an idea until you know I'd sort of seen that picture I think I always look back now and think I was very lucky because a lot of my friends didn't know what they wanted to do and they kind of went to university and treaded water and kind of came out of uni with a degree, still not really knowing what they wanted to do. So I was pretty lucky. I played hockey at school, so I never had a chance to do the cadets. We had a really massive Air Force cadets group uh, in my school, but because I was so busy playing hockey, I couldn't join them. So, you know, a very, very minimal exposure to anything that was subsequently going to become my absolute life. And I think whenever I did join, I was still really naive. I was still, I think... Maybe that's how I got through a lot of my training is that, you know, it's all very exciting and I'm, you know, don't know what's coming next. And I think when you're young and you go into anything so fresh eyed on that, it is all exciting. And some of the stuff you have to do in basic training, it's pretty hard, but you kind of just jump through all the hoops that are put in front of you because you don't know any better. (laughs) Were you one of the youngest going through with the other people that were in your group during basic training? Yeah, I was, there was a few youngsters on the course. The main thing for me really in my basic training was there was hardly any females. So in the intake, I think we had about 40 guys and three females. And yeah, I was definitely one of the younger ones. And then whenever I then, as I went, so that was very basic training where you kind of just come out as, and and for the, the role that I was going into in the Air Force as a helicopter crewman, we came out after three months as sergeants which I'm sure you will obviously understand that's quite a high rank to hold on your shoulder straight away. So I was 19 years old and I'm walking around as a sergeant in the Royal Air Force, which was pretty immense. But then whenever we started our kind of helicopter specific training, we got whittled down onto courses of six. And I was the only female at that point out of, you know, the, the two other girls had gone in different directions. So I was the only female and I was the youngest by nine years. So yes, it's still, you know, a really steep learning curve, but the guys looked after me like, like big brothers really. So, um, I never was made to feel, you know, any different because I was a female and I've certainly never wanted any extra praise for being a female. I just wanted to kind of be accepted and get on with it just like the lads. Right. That was going to be my next question, whether you were treated any differently or not, or just seen as sort of just one of the other soldiers or airmen. Yeah, no, very much so. And that was kind of a theme throughout my whole entire career is that, I mean, the Air Force, the forces in general, it's one big family, one big team. And, you know, if you're a team player and you get on with things and you get, you know, you you give it as much as you get in terms of just, you know, whenever there's a duty to be done, when there's a task to be completed um, and even the banter, you know, if you give the banter then and you take the banter, then you're accepted as one of the team. And that was very much the theme throughout my career. Um. I've often thought that, you know, if you're a female doing a very unique job, 
if you want some kind of fanfare and some kind of round of applause for doing it because you're a female, it's almost like saying that you're not capable in the first place. You know, that I hear that saying, oh, isn't she good because she's a helicopter crewman, despite the fact she's a woman. You know, it's almost like saying, well, we're not capable to begin with. So I never wanted any special recognition. And that was almost the highest accolade was that I didn't need any special recognition. I was just getting on with the job and, and doing it to the best of my ability. I sort of flip-flop back and forth. I totally agree that we don't want any special treatment. And especially in Canada now, they're really pushing women to join. But one of the things is like, I always can't stand it when I'm doing something and the photographer comes over and they're like, oh, we need a picture of a woman doing this. It's like, well, everyone else is doing it. But then I think of maybe you seeing that photo and it was, you know, a man in the photo. But if you had seen a, a woman doing that, maybe you would know that, okay, now I can do this job as well, or there's other women out there doing that job. So it just kind of maybe reinforces that for the younger women that like, okay, yes, you can do these jobs as well. I'm so glad you said that because whenever I had the same, I used to, we used to call it token Doris and they used to come along and want a female and it was like, oh, get Liz out. And I used to always avoid it and manage to kind of use the fact that I was from Northern Ireland, which was a bit sensitive and managed to avoid it. But then after a few years of being the only female doing my job on the front line, a couple of other girls joined the squadron and one of those girls had seen me about four years before when she was holding and she said that it was seeing me doing the job that had inspired her to go across it and become aircrew and you know that was a game changer for me I thought wow you know someone seeing me actively getting on with the role and just you know doing it to the best of my ability has inspired someone else and I think you know certainly whenever you know then became an instructor and very much felt the same you know it almost felt like it was a duty to kind of inspire more females into the role and since the book came out in September that's very much, you know, something I've shied away from most of my career, which is being the, you know, female kind of, not pinup, but the female kind of took an effort in front of the camera. Um, now I feel really proud of it. And, uh, you know, I, I hopefully am inspiring more females to go into the, those kind of jobs. There is a lot of sort of British humor and terminology in this book that I am unfamiliar with. So can you explain what a Doris is? Yeah, so... It's very much a, a, an Air Force thing. And I think it comes back from like uh, Battle of Britain, kind of World War II era, that, you know, females in the in the RAF were called Doris. And it was a term of affection. So uh, whenever I arrived in the squadron, I was I was nicknamed Doris very early on. Uh, and it's kind of an old fashioned female name. I think that's kind of where it stuck. But then whenever we got a few more females on the squadron, they were Doris number two and Doris number three and Doris number four. But I was always initially just the Doris and um, I had it on my squadron mug and everything. So yeah, very much a term of affection. And coming back to that, you know, being part of a team, for me, it was, I, I liked having the nickname. And I think in the forces, when you get a nickname, you know that you're accepted, you're part of something whenever you get a nickname. But I remember going home once at Christmas time and my partner shouted across the living room, uh, get the kettle on Doris. And my mum looked at him and was like, How are you, why are you calling her Doris? And my mum was really offended by it. And I said, mum, it's a term of affection. And I think that's, you know, banter and, and nicknames are very much, you know, you can be offended by something if you perceive it differently. And I got asked recently if there's any sexism in the forces. And I said, no, I don't think there was from my journey throughout the Air Force. Because it's how you perceive stuff. You know, I used to get bantered most days about parking badly. And I remember we did a, an all-female fly past once on, a, on an RAF Chinook. And whenever we parked it, uh, parked the Chinook and walked back into the squadron, there was lots of banter about whether or not we parked it straight. And, you know, again, that's we, we just laughed and it's a bit of a bit of banter. So the, the, 
the term Doris was all about that. It was kind of a, an affectionate term and I meant that I was, you know, accepted, I think. Yeah, I think a lot of it too is like the intent. Like they're not, you know, like you said, it's a term of endearment. It's a, it's affection. It's meant to be a good thing. They're not doing that in some sort of way to offend you. There is a lot of stuff now where it's, you know, well, you can't say this because someone's offended, but throughout my career, I guess I'm the same way with the banter and I guess now maybe more hyper aware of, okay, well, it doesn't offend me, but it might offend someone else. But there's also like, if you're allowing something to offend you, then you're giving that other person power. Yeah. And I think if you can be, if you're allowing yourself to be offended by something, then you also have to have the the bravery to speak up and say, look, that's, I find that offensive and you've got to take ownership. If you're, if you're going to take ownership of being offended, then you've got to take ownership of changing that narrative and saying, look, that does offend me. And could you maybe change it to something else? And you know, that goes with with everything in life. If, if you can, if you're big enough to be offended by it, then you're big enough to do something about it. <laughs> Yeah. And I think most people, if someone said that to them, they'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize. And then they wouldn't do that again. So what was it like going through your initial training to become a crewman? So I was very naive, as I said earlier, whenever I joined. I'd never left Northern Ireland before. So moving to England at the age of of 19, essentially with just a bag full of coat hangers at the time. My mum packed my bag full of coat hangers because it said in the joining instructions I'd need coat hangers. But I was really naive. And, uh, you know, I then spent three months of the basic training learning how to be in the Air Force and learning what the rank structure was, which is extremely difficult when they're all the same in the Air Force. There's just lots of lines for different officers and I end up saluting corporals on the gate and all sorts. But they're very good in the military of stepping you up slowly. So, you know, I came out of basic training, say wearing the rank of sergeant and kind of knew a little bit more about, you know, that military bearing and and how to act and how to be on parade and those kind of things and then throughout the helicopter training again it's lots of baby steps so the first uh, three months it's all about navigation and rules of the air and and a bit of basic radio kind of comms and then whenever you move on to the first flying phase that you do that was done on a, a thing called a griffin helicopter which is a little bit like a huey helicopter from Vietnam and again the first time you ever go flying I remember putting my flying helmet on and plugging into the intercom and it was all a bit daunting it's like oh my goodness I'm actually talking on a proper radio but all the things you do are very small little packages of learning um, and then whenever I eventually got onto Chinook helicopters I mean those things are a beast so everything that I'd learned in the baby helicopter I was now learning how to put more things inside because the Chinook you can fit a huge amount of, of freight inside you can put landovers and trailers and 105 field guns in there uh, and it's got three hooks underneath so we could fit three three undersung loads so I guess you know if I if I looked at 19 years old and thought oh my god I've got so much to learn it would have been so daunting, but that's really good kind of taking you up through through it all really slowly. So, yeah. What did you find the hardest thing was for you to learn? In terms of learning, I guess, learning to work as a crew, you know, it, you get taught what you have to do in your little bubble, like for picking up an understand load, for example, you get taught how to voice marshal, which is where you're talking the pilot overhead, the, the pickup point. But you have to then understand that, he maybe can't hear you properly because he's got a radio that he's listening to. He maybe can't understand you because you've got a different accent. Or maybe there's something, you know, he's wearing night vision goggles and can't see the same things you can see. So it's kind of understanding how to bring the whole crew together and work as a team to achieve some of the tasks when you're when you're in the air. 
Um, but in terms of the most taxing thing that I did in my all of my training, it would have to be the escape and evasion course that we do before we're allowed to go to Afghanistan. We have to do essentially go on the run from the enemy. So we get downed behind enemy lines and we have no kit apart from what we're wearing. So just a flying suit and some boots. And you go on the run from some hunter force and then eventually you get caught and interrogated. And it's pretty brutal. I mean, it's, you know, it's the kind of sort of stuff you see in movies on TV. But I guess, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to have gone to Afghanistan without having done that training, because at least I knew that if I, if the worst did happen and I ever ha- did have to go on the run from the Taliban, I had a rough idea of what to do and, and how to get away. So, yeah, that was definitely the most, you know, physically and mentally challenging thing I've ever done. So explain to me what some of these interrogations were like. <laughs> so you don't have any food for the week that you're on the run. So you're pretty tired by the time they catch you. And they want to get you to the breaking point pretty quickly. So what essentially they're trying to do is extract information from you. But in between all of those, you're doing a thing called conditioning and stress positions. So they're trying to break you down even more mentally. So we had we got locked in a cage for a, a I think it was about two hours we were in there for. And then we got put in front of a TV that had white noise playing and put in another room where it was a baby crying that was played to us for two hours, which was just making you go insane. And then stress positions, which is where you stood pressed up against the wall with your hands above your head or sat with your legs crossed on the floor and your hands on your head. And these are all just designed to kind of physically break you down to the point where you just want to tell them everything so you can just get out of there. You know, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about where your mental resilience is. And, you know, you realize how far you can push your body. Tell me about some of the coping mechanisms you used during that, where maybe you were in a stress position and you were thinking, I would rather be anywhere but right here, right now. There was a guy in captivity years and years ago. I think it was in Iraq. And he kept uh, his brain busy by building a hotel and filling it with staff. And he designed all the interiors all in his mind. So what I did whenever I was doing my interrogations was I went through my entire wardrobe and matched all of the shoes that I have with all of the dresses that I have. And it sounds really silly, but it mentally kept me occupied and got me through that time, really, you know, just because I wasn't then thinking about how cold the wall was, how hungry I was, how much my back was hurting. I was thinking about, oh, those shoes, oh, they'd match that dress. <laughs> so yeah, I'm sure none of the other lads would have thought of anything the same as me, but that's how I got through. Yeah, it's whatever works for you at the time. Have you seen the reality show SAS Who Dares Wins? Yes, yes, I have. I actually met Foxy, who is uh, the guy over here in the UK that does that a few weeks ago at an event. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's exactly, it's exactly the same course that they show on that show. Yeah, I was watching that. Uh, well, I've I've watched a number of seasons, but I've seen that portion of the show as well. So I was thinking about that when I was reading your that portion of your book. Yeah. And do you know what? It's good that those guys are doing that because it actually highlights to a lot of people just what some of us in the forces go through, you know, to get to the front line. It's not all it's not all Tom Cruise and fast jets and red arrows and those kind of things that you see at air shows. You know, there's a lot of stuff goes on in the background for certainly the helicopter crews to get out to the front line. And it's it's good that they're highlighting that, I think. So did you ever have any moments during your training, either that course or during your crewman courses, where you wanted to give up? Honestly, probably not. I um, I mean, this is the worst piece of advice anybody could give you know a teenager growing up and if there's any parents watching this they'll be like close your ears but I had no plan b and I am a massive believer that if you want plan a enough you'll make it happen 
you know, you'll push through physical pain, you'll push through boundaries or, you know, any any challenges that come your way. If you want plan A enough, you can make it happen. And I left Northern Ireland, like I say, with that little suitcase full of coat hangers with no plan B. And therefore, every time I came up against one of those challenges, like the, the level C course or even the dunker, which is where we do some underwater skate training to get out of helicopters. And you're essentially strapped to a helicopter that's and you're about to drown and you have to get out. So you know, the kind of thing that, you know, if you were, if you had a plan B, it would be so easy to go, no, I've had enough now, off I go. And I didn't have a plan B and it meant that I just pushed and pushed and pushed for plan A. So yes, probably the worst piece of advice to give to kids. But if you genuinely want something enough, don't have a backup plan because then you'll make the plan A work. I can't remember the exact timeline, but during your career, where did 9-11 fit in? Was that right before you joined? It was a week before I joined, yeah. And I remember watching it. I worked in a cafe at the time and I remember driving to work and I got to, I mean, it was only a 10 minute drive from my house to where I worked. And I went in and Margaret, one of the other ladies who worked there said, oh, your mum's in the phone. So I, I thought, what have I forgotten? That was my first thought was, what have I forgotten? Because I'd only just got there. And um, picked up the phone and mum said, put the TV on in the cafe, put the TV on now. So myself and the other girls that worked there went out to the kids' corner. There was a kids' play corner and we put the TV on just as the second plane was going in. And that event, I mean, Margaret elbowed me as we were watching it just in awe. And she said, you're about to join the military, Liz. You're going to be really busy. And I remember thinking at the time, I wonder if she's going to be right. And she really was. I mean, that event shaped the whole career of my military time. Every single thing that I did, you know, I did two deployments to Iraq and then I did 10 deployments to Afghanistan. And I don't think any of that would have happened if 9-11 hadn't happened. So, but equally I joined the military to do a job and I'm so, I always feel very privileged that I got to go to those places and, and fight wars essentially, because if I had just joined the military and had 17 years of flying around in the UK and what we nickname as burning holes in the sky for the sake of it, you know, that would have been quite a boring career. But I was very lucky that I joined just at the right time to kind of, I guess, get the good stuff without sounding like a war junkie. <laughs> when you saw that, did you get nervous or did that put any doubts in your mind? Or were you just kind of like, okay, yes, I will be busy and there will be something to do? I think I only realized, you know, halfway through my career, how how right Margaret was that day. I think um, it didn't affect me in terms, it didn't make me want to join up any less. I was still really excited to go. And the night of the Iraq invasion, I was still on my baby helicopter training then. And I remember we had a big TV that we pulled into the crew room that night. And we watched it live on TV, essentially happening. And that was all the heli, you know, the helicopter crews were crossing the border at the Al Four Peninsula to go into Iraq, which was 20 years ago, as of about three weeks ago, two weeks ago. Those guys in those helicopters were guys that I then went subsequently, whenever I got to the front line, were guys that I know really well. There was a reunion about that last weekend, funny enough, in London. And, you know, most of the guys in that reunion were all mates of mine who I've flown with for the rest of my career. So I think I couldn't really wait to get involved. I remember watching that invasion and thinking, oh, that might, you know, I'm going to be able to catch all that up in about a year's time. I'll be there. I'll have the the combats on. And I remember, you know, going through training, you wear your flying suit. But when you go out to one of the, the deployments, you wear a desert combats. And I remember when I first arrived at the squadron after my my conversion training to the Chinook and seeing the first bus come out and pull up outside the squadron and all the guys getting off the bus and they were all wearing their their desert combats and they all had their big black hold-alls that were covered in sand and they just looked 
tanned and knackered and I just thought I can't wait to go and be part of that gang and and be wearing what you know was the war costume I guess rather than just the flying suit. And so how soon after you finished your training did you deploy? So I finished the uh, conversion unit when I was 21 and I hit my first squadron in January in 2003 and I deployed to Iraq that summer in the August so six months maybe seven months Whenever I went to Iraq, I was still a thing called limited combat ready. So essentially when you finish com- converting onto the aircraft type, so converted onto the Chinook and um, and you, you're you're basically like a baby crewman. So you still have what's like L plates on, I guess, and you're learning how to be combat ready. So you, you, you know how to operate the aircraft, but you don't quite know how to do it when people are shooting at you. And you basically have to learn how to bend the rules, but bend them safely uh, when you're on the squadron for the first few months. And I was, and that generally it takes about a year to get combat ready. So I ended up going to Iraq after seven months and I was still limited combat ready. So still really young and, and baby-like. But thankfully for me, by the time I did, and I was, because I was 21, I was the youngest air crew from the, the British forces to go to Iraq. But what what I was quite lucky in that Iraq, by the time I got there, the war fighting element had finished, the war fighting was over. And it was more a thing called routine tasking, which is where we used to move freight and troops and kind of water, that kind of thing around between all the different bases that were there. And mainly working from Basra, and we had a, a small footprint of, of aircraft up in a place called Alamara, which was halfway between Basra and Baghdad. But, you know, we weren't getting shot at very often. And we were also manning the flying ambulance, which in Afghanistan became called the MERT. But in, a, in Iraq, it was called the IRT. And, and none of the casualties that were picked up, you know, were really badly injured. It was things like, you know, vehicle accidents or appendicitis. So, I always refer to it as my normality bar. I think, you know, I had the the luxury of kind of seeing a little bit of what a war zone was like in Iraq while it was still quiet. And then in 2005, we moved towards Afghanistan. And that's when things started to get really interesting for the Chinook force. And how long were these deployments to Iraq? So Iraq was two months at a time. So we would do two months there and then 10 months back here in the UK and then go again. So I did two deployments to Iraq all up. So about four months there. Okay. And what was going through your head the first time you did get shot at? <laughs> um, so I remember thinking, whenever you get shot at, sometimes you don't even know you're getting shot at. And it's like crossing the road and nearly being hit by a car. Sometimes it's happened before you've even known it's happened. But the first time I think was in Afghanistan. And I remember just thinking, cheeky bugger, he's just shot at me. <laughs> and it's almost like, you're offended and you you, you kind of, that was kind of my overwhelming emotion because it was kind of on a quite a benign tasking day. I've, I've since then been shot at lots of times and sometimes it's in, in quite tasty deliberate ops that we're doing. And you've got a job to do. I mean, we train to obviously man the weapons that we have on the Chinook and uh, we've got an M60 on the fitted to the ramp, which is um, and actually a weapon that's American made, and it was used in the Vietnam War a lot. They bungeed it to the side of Hueys quite a lot, and we also have a minigun to the front and the left hand side of the aircraft, um, which always makes me laugh because the minigun is huge. It, it fires three thousand rounds a minute. It weighs fifty seven kilograms, and it, there's nothing mini about it. But you know, our job is to man that weapon. So unlike the troops on the ground, whenever they're getting shot at, they can take cover. And they can hide in ditches or, you know, go into a building or whatever, go to ground. We can't. We have to stand there and man that weapon and defend the aircraft. So it can be, it's quite interesting. You know, it has its moments. And I think I always 
felt like a you know I had like a little ready we have like you know there used to be ready brick which is a, a porridge back here in the UK and the little advert had a little man with a little glow around him as he ate his porridge and I always used to think like I've got a little invisible shield around me whenever I was manning the weapon because you know I felt a little bit invincible I think and, and that was probably because I always felt really safe on a chinook and despite the fact that it's taken me to some of the, the probably the most dangerous places on the earth in terms of war zones I always felt really safe whenever I was in the aircraft you know it looked after me that chinook and it's a battlefield helicopter and I've taken some pretty big battle damage to it. You know, we've, we've taken a lot of incoming fire and um, I know of crews that have lost an engine and another crew that have lost about a foot and a half off one of the rotor blades. But the thing keeps flying and it's, you know, it'll, um, it'll usually get you home. You do have that picture in your book of you standing below this bullet hole that went sort of right over your head. Yeah, I've had two near misses throughout my career. That was the first one. And yeah, the bullet hole went in the front door. I was um, the number two crewman, which is the crewman that stands at the front door. And uh, a bullet went in over my head by about a foot, maybe a foot and a half. And it rattled through the aircraft and the engineers actually found it for me. It had embedded itself in the metalwork on the other side of the, the cabin. So they dug it out for me a couple of days later and gave it to me. So that stayed in my bedside drawer. And then on a deliberate op, we took some AAA, which is quite high caliber anti-aircraft um, ammunition. So we took a high caliber round. Well, we actually, the whole aircraft took incoming that night. But one of the rounds was caught on the... Um, by the ballistic panel that I was stood on. So the round came up beneath my feet. And if that hadn't been there, yeah, there's a, absolutely, I would have been a goner. And the engineers very helpfully found that one for me. <laughs> so, so I've got two two bullets in my bedside drawer and people keep suggesting I should make some earrings out of them or some cufflinks or something. But yeah, I think they can stay there for now. <laughs> yeah, that was my first thought. You could put it on a necklace. What was the sort of difference like in operations and what you were doing in Iraq compared to Afghanistan? So Iraq, like I mentioned before, was very quiet. You know, it was just moving troops and and, um, and freight and, and food and stuff around. Afghanistan in the early days was very similar. In the early days in Afghanistan, Camp Bastion didn't exist. So we were based out of Kandahar, which is where all the other you know, the Canadians were there, the uh, Americans, the Aussies. It was great. It was like a big holiday camp, really. <laughs> And the Chinook force were kind of instrumental in getting all of the, the building materials for Camp Bastion across a thing called the Red Desert, which was in the southern area of Helmand. And it was about a 45 minute flying time from where Kandahar was to Camp Bastion. So the early maybe two deployments I did was just moving stuff across there and, and holding a response with a, a sort of some medics at Camp Bastion in case any of the British troops in Helmand got injured. In fact, if any of the NATO troops got injured. And we only had a couple of what are called forward operating bases. So the little tiny bases up the Helmand Valley. There was only a few. We had a place called Lashkagar, Goreshk, Sangin existed at that point, And a place very, at the very top of Helmand Valley called um, uh, Kajaki. And other than that, there was hardly any British troops on the ground. So even in terms of what was happening in the flying ambulance, you know, there was very little because there was hardly anyone there getting injured. But from about 07, 08 onwards, they, there was more British troops pushed up the Helmand Valley and lots more British troops injected, uh, you know, and all NATO troops kind of in, into Afghanistan. And things started to ramp up very quickly. So what had become kind of routine tasking in the early days suddenly became a lot more in terms of MERT, that, which was the flying ambulance, the medical emergency response team. Um, and the, the things that we were going to got worse. Uh, you know, there's more bullet injuries head injuries and trauma um, and you know we went from picking up lots of you know walking wounded to suddenly picking up lots of stretchers 
torsos, limbs missing. And people started dying in the back of the aircraft. And I think that's when I kind of knew that this was real. You know, this is, we're at war now. You know, watching people, watching British soldiers die at your feet was, was pretty, you know, hard kind of on a day-to-day basis. You know, it was, and it was happening more than once a day. I remember my, my worst day, where we had 14 medical shouts back to back. It was just horrendous. And then we did a lot of deliberate ops. So deliberate ops are where we go and assault known enemy, known Taliban compounds. And, you know, there'd be days leading up to that, doing lots of briefings and whatnot. And we worked with all the other NATO forces to go and take some of these these areas. So it got very kinetic very, very quickly. And, you know, the routine tasking would be done by one or two Chinooks throughout the day. And then the rest of the crews would be on the night ops doing all the kind of more exciting and high octane stuff. And then you rotate. So you'd maybe do a day tasking some of the night stuff and then go into the flying ambulance kind of duty, the merch duty, and then go back to the start again. So every day was different. But yeah, it from kind of 07 away onwards, really until I left in 2015, when the whole British forces pulled out of Afghanistan, it was, um, yeah, lots of bullets and lots of lots of wounded soldiers. Yeah, I didn't realize uh, until I was reading this, I guess, how much of a Jack or in your case, Jill of all trades you have to be in the back of the Chinook because you're doing the medical evacuations, you're, you know, lifting equipment, you're transporting troops, there are so many different jobs within your job that you have to do. Yeah, and we're very different in terms of the the way the British military do that compared to all the other Chinook operators. So I think they you guys have got Chinooks and so the Americans and so the Aussies. And and I think the, the Dutch have got them as well still, but they have crew chiefs and those crew chiefs are trained for each individual task. So you might have one who's there for the undersung loads and you might have one who's there for the internal vehicles, one who's there specifically to man the weapons. Whereas we have to do the radios, some of the navigation, we do the weapons, yeah, one's a vehicle. So it's just the two of us on there all day long. Um, and you're crewed up with the same people generally well we sort of stay as a crew for the whole maybe month that you're in Afghanistan and then we'll we'll swap to another crew for a month and Afghanistan became three month tours so you might have maybe one two or three crews throughout that time but that's it the four of you go off for a day's tasking and it's kind of the ramp goes down and you kind of just deal with whatever comes towards you so I mean we've had a flow on um uh, cement mixers and step ladders and cable drums and you're like trying to think how am I going to fit all that in here where's it all going to go and sometimes you know donkeys and dogs and you name it if it fits in and we can take it we'll take it so I think that's what I love the most about doing that job is that our ramp on that aircraft made a difference to people every single day and whether or not that was picking up injured soldiers and getting them back to Camp Bastion to, to survive. And at one point in Afghanistan, it was the only place in the world where you could survive a non-survivable injury, which is a huge testament to the, the medics that we carried on the mert. But, you know, whether or not it was us rescuing soldiers, whether or not it was taking ammunition and water into soldiers that were pinned down in one of the bases, or whether or not it was taking a letter from home or fresh fruit into some of the guys, the stuff that we did, every time that ramp went down, we made a difference. And I think that sense of purpose was something that, you know, I'd always wanted throughout life. And it, it, my 17 years in the Air Force very much gave me that on Chinooks. How did you decompress after those particularly difficult days where maybe a military member did die in the helicopter? Yeah, so 
we didn't have anything formal in place. You know, it was a case of as a crew, we would land and we'd maybe go and have a brew together, you know, or a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, whatever you guys call it. But, um, you know, we'd go in and maybe catch up and, and sit outside on one of the blast walls and have a chat. But certainly for me on a personal level, I used to go and run. I used to go to the gym and kind of just thrash it out at the gym. And I think a lot of people do that, you know, headphones in off you go and the more you know when I, I look back now and whenever I joined Air Force I could barely run a mile um, and then I got quite good at it as the years went on and I think that's because I just ran and I ran and I ran you know almost like Forrest Gump from the film I just kept going and every time I saw more trauma I would just run a bit more and run for longer and I think a lot of people kind of use those kind of things is they kind of empty their bucket at the end of a day in terms of formalization for decompression in about 2010 the British military realized that actually the stuff that a lot of people, you know, the soldiers on the ground and the air crew were seeing in Afghanistan was getting pretty bad. So we had a more formalized thing put in place called decompression, and that was at Cyprus. So when we would fly home from Afghanistan, we'd have to spend two days in Cyprus decompressing on. It was good. You know, we had we got to sit on a beach for a day and we got a couple of tins of beer and then we'd go home to the, all our loved ones. A lot of people didn't really want to do it initially because they just wanted to get home. You know, your your three months tour is over. All you want to do is pack your kit and get out of there and get back to your back to your home and your loved ones or your kids. But actually, you know, looking back in hindsight, it probably was a really useful just to have two days where you're not in uniform, you're in your civvies that you brought with you, and you're just talking about general stuff that you're looking forward to getting back to rather than talking about a deliberate op or what's the aircraft doing or the threat. So it's kind of just almost normalizing what you're talking about as well. And looking back, so if you were to think of maybe something that could have been added or something that could have been done, do you think that there's anything that they could have done better maybe after those difficult days or, or put in place? Or do you think that, that you were equipped enough to cope with that? No, I think very much they should have done something sooner. I mean, I think maybe, I mean, it's the classic saying, we're all really bad at learning too late, aren't we? You know, hindsight is a wonderful thing. But I think that they should have had a lot more to do with decompression from the very start in Afghanistan. But I don't think anyone knew how bloody that campaign was going to be. And it caught everybody out, you know, every single force that was there on the ground, it caught us all out. But, you know, those are lessons that we had from the Falklands, certainly from the British side of things, you know, and same for Iraq. We should have at least had the framework in place ready to press go straight away if we needed it. And it always felt like a little bit of an afterthought. But certainly, you know, I suffered whenever I left the forces. I suffered in 2020 really badly with PTSD and my mental health. And I look back now at any, you know, whenever I was going through my rehab for that, some of the tools and some of the things I learned for me on a personal level, are things that they could teach the basic recruits. You know, there should be so much more when you're going through basic training about how to de- how to acknowledge your mental health, how to be able to talk about it, you know, how to make sure that it's not taboo, and how to be able to kind of be brave enough to go into the crew room and say, I'm really struggling today, and, and not feel like you're letting the side down. Because I think we're taught from day one in basic training to be really hard and really, you know, go to the fight and not shy away from the fight and to be unbreakable. You know, we're all trained as soldiers to be unbreakable and because nobody wants soldiers to break. But actually, you need to you need to be able to be taught how to to be able to ask for help when you are breaking before it gets too late. Yeah. And I mean, people use that analogy like a vehicle, like you need to do your regular maintenance or else it will break down. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, people use the term resilient a lot in my story. And 
and I remember getting my yearly report whenever I was going through the, through um, my career. And I always said, you know, Sergeant McConaughey is so resilient. And then Flight Sergeant McConaughey is so resilient. And I mistook what that word meant. I thought resilient meant unbreakable for my entire career. And then every time I was asked to do an extra deployment or an extra duty, I'd say, yep, I can do that because I'm unbreakable. And actually what I did was break myself because of it. I think whenever you continually go to the fight, not only are you taking, you know, you're, you're increasing the bucket load and all the water that's going into your bucket, but you're not giving yourself time to empty your bucket because all those things that we do to decompress, like spending time with family, going on holidays, just, you know, just chilling out over a weekend or mountain biking and all those things that people love doing. If you are always away and deployed or at war or even just doing duties in the squadron, then you never have time to empty your bucket. And it's, you know, it's something that all the basic recruits can be taught that really early on in their career, I think now. So that does lead into my next question where you mentioned being asked to go on an extra deployment. Did you ever think, oh, maybe this is too much or at the time you just wanted to keep going? No, I loved it. You know, I wasn't a war junkie, but I very much had the thought process of I can't let the team down. You know, we were such a small unit in terms of our squadrons here in the UK that if I didn't go, somebody else would have to go in my place. Somebody else would get, you know, shafted, I guess is the term we used to use. You know, they'd have to spend an extra time away and then they'd have to do their time that they were scheduled for as well. So if you didn't pull your weight, all you were doing is, is stuffing up your, your friends. So and because we're, we all knew each other so well, you you had to go. And I also didn't want somebody else to take my bullet. It sounds like a really sweeping statement, but I think we were all very much like, what if something happens? What if I'm not there and someone goes in my place and they get shot at and or they crash or whatever? You could never live with the guilt. So I always used to go every single time I was asked because of that sort of inbuilt pressure. And it's funny because that was a pressure that absolutely came from within. You know, nobody I think would have ever... Certainly no one in the squadron would have ever thought badly of me if I'd have said by the time I did 10 deployments to Afghanistan, if I'd have got to deployment number seven and said, I think I've had enough now, nobody would ever, ever looked unfavorably at that. I'm sure the whole squadron would have supported me in that, but I didn't. I just kept going. (laughs) I just kept going. And I honestly, at the time, didn't think I was suffering. You know, PTSD is a very strange beast. It catches you up when you least expect it. The day that I left the Air Force after seven, after nineteen, no, seventeen years in twenty nineteen, I remember opening a bottle of champagne with my partner at the time, and he was in the British Army, and we toasted each other and said, you know, we've got out in one piece. You know, our brains and our bodies are still intact within reason. You know, we had the odd niggle and whatnot, and I damaged my neck, which is why I ended up leaving. But you know, in terms of mental health, we were really good, and. I remember thinking I couldn't believe that I got out in one piece because a lot of my friends hadn't and a lot of my friends and colleagues had, you know, significant PTSD from much less. And here I was with my 10 deployments and I was fine. And and then, you know, say 2020, that's when it caught up with me. So, and, and PTSD doesn't discriminate in, you know, sex, race or rank. You know, we have some British commanders here in the UK with the, the head of the Royal Marines he, he killed himself last year. He took his own life. And, you know, a lot of that was sort of, you know, uh, allocated to PTSD as well. So, you know, it's it's something that anyone can get at any time. So you have to be really careful and look after your mates and kind of keep an eye out for it. Yeah, I do want to dive into that part of your story in a little bit. But I want to talk about your injuries. So you started noticing that you were having neck problems. 
Yeah. So I think whenever you're in the, I guess, the thick of the war, you don't let your body rest. You don't stop. And it was only whenever we pulled out of Afghanistan in 2015, my neck started to really play up. It meant that I found it really hard to look over my shoulder. I was in a lot of pain when I was looking over my shoulder. But I never went to the doc about it because we get grounded. As soon as you say, I've got a neck problem or you've got a bad back, um, the first thing that the British doctors here do is say, right, you're no, no more flying for you. And I loved flying. You know, it was what I joined to do. So I kind of brassed it out, you know, went stuck with it for a while until a colleague said something behind me one day when we were walking in from an aircraft back to the squadron and I turned my whole body to answer him and he said, Liz, you've got to go to the physio. You've just got to go. So I did and got grounded and I went through a bit of rehab. All the medics and all the physios back here in the UK did a really, you know, absolutely through everything in terms of trying to get me back fit to fly. And I did for a while and then it went again. And essentially in 2018, I had a med board here, a medical board, where you have lots of high ranking officers sort of sit and look at your case and looked at my file and saw that I had some pretty badly damaged vertebrae in my neck which was from wearing a flying helmet for 17 years. And we we wear those night vision goggles that you attach to the front of your helmet. And then as well as putting those in the front of your helmet, you then put a counterbalance weight on the back of your helmet so that your, your helmet doesn't rotate on your head. So you're like tripling the weight of your head. And as well as that, as a crewman, you're not standing upright all the time on the jobs that we were doing. You're hanging under the aircraft. You've got your head out the front door in the airflow. So you just batter your entire body. And it wasn't really a massive surprise after 17 years that my neck did give up. So I had my med board in 2018 and then was medically discharged in 2019. And I got offered a desk job for a while and I did it for three months and just said, I can't do this. You know, I joined the Air Force to fly and I couldn't look out the window at the Chinooks taking off every day and go, well, where are they going? What are they doing today? And I'm sat here manning a desk. So yeah, I took my med, med discharge and left in 2019 and and it was really hard, you know, having been in the Air Force from the age of 19 and wearing that same flying suit, you know, every day, proudest punch with my name and rank and, and number on my chest and suddenly just to be Liz, Liz who? You know, I wasn't Liz the crewman anymore. I was just Liz. And the other thing is whenever you hand your ID back, you're essentially off camp and it's, you know, you're not, you can't get back through to see all your mates because they're on the other side of the gate. And it's really it's leaving the military for anyone who's been in for that long is, is a very tough experience. It really is. Were there programs in place for you at the time when you were transitioning out of the military or was it just sort of one day you're in and then the next you're not? Well, whenever you're still in, you get to do your thing called um, like resettlement. So you get some money to go on courses and kind of get lots of civilian qualifications. Um, I did personal trainer so I could come out and be a personal trainer and a project management course so I could come out and do that as a job. But you're still in you're still in your uniform then. But the day you hand your uniform back in and you hand your ID back in, no, that's you, gone. And I was lucky that I still live near camp and I have some great mates that, you know, I'd been to Afghanistan with and I'd lived with for months and tents and whatnot and I knew them really well and they're some of my best friends but I imagine for anyone else who lived further away from camp or people just you know around the UK when you leave if you go back to your hometown you know you're suddenly just you know you feel invisible you feel you know you've been part of something huge for a very long time and something with so much purpose and suddenly you've got no identity and no purpose and I think that's why so many veterans really struggle when they leave because it's so quick it just you know one one day you're in the club and the next day you're not. Was that the hardest part for you? That sort of not feeling like you had that purpose anymore? 
Yeah, very much so. And I think, you know, the first year I was okay. I I guess the first year I was out, I felt like I'd sort of been set free, I guess is a probably a good way to summarize it. And, you know, I'd been in, it was my only kind of working job as an adult, the forces. So I sort of thought, well, what's next? And I was very excited about seeing what the world had to offer and, and where I was going to find my new purpose. And, and that worked fantastically. I went to work for a, a charity who fly disabled veterans. So a lot of the guys that I picked up in Afghanistan off the battlefield were now, you know, learning how to fly little fixed wing airplanes. And that gave me a huge sense of purpose again. Maybe not the identity, but it suddenly, it suddenly filled that purpose kind of element of life again. And then in, in 2020 here in the UK, we got locked down because of COVID. And I was, you know, straight away had no purpose and no identity. And I think for anyone who went through lockdown, obviously we all did, it was very hard to... I guess, find a routine. And that's when all my PTSD started to really manifest because as we talked about earlier, my coping mechanisms for a lot of the stuff I'd seen was running and going to the gym and and catching up with friends and decompressing. And none of that was, you know, lockdown was the first lockdown here in the UK. You didn't even have a bubble of people. You just were in your house wherever you were. And that was you and your own. And I lived in a little apartment here in the UK on my own and couldn't go and suddenly keep myself busy running. Couldn't go and, you know, chat to mates down the pub. And as that year unraveled, as 2020 unraveled, I developed insomnia. And mostly, I think, because I had no routine. You know, I wasn't wasn't tiring myself out running and to try and increase the endorphins in my body again because I'd essentially become addicted to exercise over the years in the forces um but to try and replace those endorphins I got addicted to sugar really badly during lockdown and I mean I'm not just talking junk eating which we all did whenever we're watching Netflix and and whatnot here in the UK but really badly addicted to sugar and that made me feel so low in terms of mood it's like a crash on the other side of it and I developed insomnia and as the the months went on I think the the real red flags came out one night whenever I couldn't sleep and I started to look up the the soldiers that I picked up on the, the flying ambulance, the MERT. Whenever we picked them up in Afghanistan, if they had died on the aircraft or died before we got to them, we used to carry them back to Camp Bastion and they were always to me and, and all the crews just a very precious piece of freight. We would never try and find out too much about them because we knew that was really detrimental for our mental health. And this night in particular, I was looking them all up on the internet, Googling them all and finding out if they were married, had they got engaged before they went out to Afghanistan, did they have kids? And I knew it was really destructive behavior for me mentally, but I never reached out to a single person to tell them I was struggling. And I think that comes back to that the feeling of not wanting to burden people. You know, everyone was going through something in lockdown and I didn't want to add to anyone else's problems. And also... Being a female doing in a job like that, nobody would have ever made me feel like a burden. It was a, an internal thing. I didn't want to be the girl crying at the back of the tent. I didn't want to be the girl who had the issues from what she'd seen. I just didn't want to be that person. And I think, you know, you don't just have to be a female in a man's world to feel like that. You just need to be the minority in any group. You know, if you're the, the youngest person in a group or the last person in a job, the last person to arrive at the office in terms of, you know, into the role or maybe the oldest person in the group, you don't want to be the burden. And, and you know, I think we're all very guilty of, of that feeling. So I, I went through into August that year and then woke up one morning and decided that I was going to take a huge overdose and end my life. And I was so mentally detached from life by that point. You know, it happened very quickly. Uh, it's almost like being on a river and you don't know how close the waterfall is. 
But one day I just woke up and went over the edge and I had emotionally just checked out of life. So I spent the whole day planning my suicide, like meticulous fashion as if it was a deliberate operation at work. You know, I knew exactly how many amitriptyline um, I would have to take to end my life. I tidied my apartment. I wrote my mom and dad a suicide note and I yeah, took out the trash and uh, had a, a shower, did my hair and makeup. And then at midnight took 95 amitriptyline and I don't remember much else. And I've always thought suicide is the most selfish act somebody could do. You know, I know a few people have been touched by suicide over the years and there's so many questions that got left behind when someone ends their life in that way because people always question what could they have done to change something? What could they have done to change someone's mind or, or stop someone getting to that point? And yet here I was that day, you know, without a single emotion, just writing my suicide note as if it was the most normal thing in the world. And the truth is now, obviously, I, I survived. I, I it, What I didn't know at the time, I woke up two days later in hospital and I was intubated with a tube down my throat. And I remember coming out of the coma. I'd been on life support for two days and I, I couldn't breathe. I had this tube down my throat and I couldn't breathe. And I was cr- like trying to grab at it and pull it out. And they put me back to sleep again. And then they brought me around a little bit later and explained I'd been brought in by an ambulance. And it turns out I got released from hospital another two days later so four days in total and I was reunited with my phone and I'd called the ambulance at 10 to 1 in the morning and I don't remember the phone call but it proves that there was something inside me that will to survive was there you know subconsciously it was there no matter how much your brain was playing tricks on you that day and saying you want to end your life that will didn't want to die and that's something you know I I guess for anyone who's ever been touched by suicide you have to kind of understand that there's nothing anyone could have said to me that day to change the outcome. You know, I guess you guys have got James Bond over there, but James Bond's actor is a guy called Daniel Craig, who I have a huge crush on. And I remember telling someone, you know, if he'd have come around for dinner that night, it wouldn't have changed the outcome of what I was doing. I had mentally decided this was my path. And I think that's, you know, I'm lucky enough to have come out the other side of it to tell people that. But I think for anyone watching this or listening to this who has been touched by suicide in any way or lost someone to suicide, um, you can't blame yourself because that person was already in that mindset and, and was heading it like a water slide. They picked up their donut and they were going one way that day. So I'm very lucky that I survived. So reading the book, there were obviously a few things that could have happened before you got to that point to prevent it. So talk to me about when you did try and call the hospital or the doctor's office to get some help. Yeah, so that morning when I woke up, I was having these suicidal thoughts and I'm quite a bubbly person normally and I was really, you know, I instantly knew this this is not good. So I call, I emailed my my GP because I think when you're struggling like that, it's sometimes so much easier to put things in words than to actually call someone and, and tell them down the phone. So I, I emailed the GP and I got an email straight back from the pharmacy, which was next door. They were like co-located in the same building. And they said, um, and the email was, you know, this is me. I woke up this morning. I want to end my life. I'm having suicidal thoughts and I'm really scared. Can somebody help me? And they emailed back and said, oh, sorry, you've come through to the um, this pharmacy. You need to call the GP next door. <laughs> So I then rang the GP and um, got a lovely, a lovely lady. So the GP is a doctor. I rang the doctor and a lovely lady answered the phone and I explained that I was had woken up and I was having these suicidal thoughts and she asked if I could call back tomorrow. <laughs> so 
when I eventually broke down crying at that point, she got, she was really good. She said, look, we'll get the GP with the doctor to phone you this afternoon. So he called me about two o'clock in the afternoon and I explained everything again, broke down in tears and said, look, I'm having these suicidal thoughts. I've never had these thoughts before. I'm very scared. And instead of saying, do you want to come into the surgery? And I lived opposite the surgery or asking what medication I was on, which would have been a really important question to ask because I was actually already taking this drug amitriptyline, which is actually, I only know now, because I've done some research on it. I was taking it for my neck pain that I, you know, I've been issued it a couple of years before whenever I left the military and it was to deal with my, my neck pain because it's a nerve blocker. And it's actually, I only know this now, attributable to 60% of suicides in the US, which is a huge statistic. But because it's a nerve blocker, it blocks your emotions as well. So, and it's because it's also an antidepressant, it puts your mood in a really low place. So all of these combining factors, I've been taking this amitriptyline and it essentially put me in a suicidal mindset. And if the doctor had asked at any point on that phone call, are you taking any meds at the minute? And I just said amitriptyline, he probably would have realized what was going on. Even if he'd looked at my notes to say that I'd being prescribed amitriptyline and and I'd reordered some on the Monday you know he didn't do any of that so that afternoon after hanging up the phone to him I kind of went well no one cares you know I've reached out to them three times now and none of them seem to care so the afternoon I went across and picked up my lethal dro- dose of uh, amitriptyline and, a, and an antidepressant that the doctor had prescribed me that afternoon and you know the same people in the pharmacy who I'd emailed first thing that morning to tell them that I wanted to end my life handed me the two bags of drugs <laughs> and off I went so there was lots of holes in the kind of you know how the, the the doctor surgery dealt with it that day and ironically they called me about two weeks later and apologized but you know thank god I was here to apologize too because it could have been a very different story yeah that could have been a very different outcome I can't even like I mean I can't even imagine being on the phone and having someone call to say they're suicidal and just saying, oh, we'll call back tomorrow. <laughs> it's insane to me. It's just. Yeah. But we were in COVID times and I think COVID was a very different time for everyone in the kind of those, those surgeries and whatnot. So um, I don't think it's an excuse, but I think, I, I think it was such strange times for everyone that, you know, I'm sure none of them looking back in hindsight would have done the same thing. Do you think that you would have still gotten to that point had COVID not happened or was, did that just sort of make it happen earlier? Do you know, I think that's a great question. I, I get asked it quite a lot actually. And I don't know, I think COVID took away my coping mechanisms. And I think I probably would still be walking around like a ticking time bomb. You know, all of that trauma was in there. You know, it's all the things I'd seen in Afghanistan had just been stored away in the back of my brain in some locker. And I think they had to come out at some point. And essentially what the amitriptyline did was it tiptoed into my brain and unlocked the locker. And then I I threw the files everywhere that day. And if COVID hadn't happened, they'd still be in there, I think, waiting to come out. And whether or not, you know, I would have, merrily skipped through the rest of my life with them locked in there who knows but what I found during my PTSD recovery journey I was very lucky that I came out of hospital four days later and was straight into the veteran mental health care system here in the UK and I'm very you know lucky to have done that because the civilian mental health system here in the UK is not so good it's just you know there's huge waiting lists and it's pretty underfunded but during that PTSD recovery journey, the important thing I had to do was look at all each of those incidents and all of the files that I'd thrown out of my head that day and acknowledge each one of them 
and read it and cry about it because I'd essentially stored up, you know, 17 years worth of crying and um and it's okay to cry about trauma because that's the whole nature of you know traumatic incidents are traumatic so you're allowed to cry about them and then put them back in my brain and if I had just scooped them all up and just stored them back in there again I'd probably be back in the same scenario that I was in pre-covid so I think the important thing when I went through my counseling was to let all those tears come out you know you don't fall and cut your knee and expect it not to bleed and equally, you don't, you know, you can't expose yourself to trauma or, or see trauma and not expect it to affect you in some way. So you need to let it bleed. You need to let it, you know, come out. So, yeah, it was quite an important kind of recovery journey that. So there's a part of the book that I want to read because I, I really like this. I feel like I see a lot of people do this, but it says, if you see someone who you suspect is struggling and you ask if they're OK, ask twice. People will almost certainly say, yep, I'm all good or living the dream is a favorite military term. But if you ask again, are you sure you're okay?" then that can sometimes prompt a vital reaction. If you're not okay, even though it's the hardest thing in the world, try and snap out of this robot like response and say exactly how you feel. Maybe just give a number. I'm a six out of 10 today can sometimes be enough. Yeah. I mean, that's one of my favorite bits in the book. And I still do now. I do a lot of motivational talking here in the UK now. And that's always my takeaways for anyone at the end of one of my talks is that you have to ask twice, ask people how they are. And when they say fine, ask them again, and you might just crack the eggshell. But also, yeah, give your mental health a number. And I do it because not only does it mean that if I'm saying the number three to myself a few days in a row or a few weeks in a row, I know that I'm not in a really good place again. But also somebody else then knows I need to keep an eye on Liz at the minute. Or if I'm saying, oh, I'm a nine today or a nine this week, someone can be like, right, don't have to worry about Liz. How's John or how's he ever? And it just means that everybody kind of is more open about their mental health. You don't have to explain why you're that number, but just give your mental health a number. And it's so much easier to say the number three than to say I'm struggling sometimes. So I think it's, you know, a massive takeaway for anyone listening to this. And what advice would you give to people who might be going down that path of having the suicidal thoughts, but has that feeling that you had before where they don't want to burden anyone? So you've got to, you know, get anyone, grab hold of somebody, whether or not it's a stranger or whether or not it's a charity. Some of the charities now have got text numbers where you can text them instead of having to make a phone call. But you get, get, let someone get their hooks into you because I mentioned the analogy earlier of a waterfall, you know, a river and a waterfall. I was kind of, I knew I was having up and down days throughout that time in COVID. And, I, you know, I wasn't in a great place, but I was never suicidal. And that suicidal thought crept up on me in the space of 24 hours. And then I went over the cliff, over the waterfall. And you don't know when it's coming. You don't know how close that is. So if you have even the inkling of the, you know, I'm not in a good place. I'm a, you know, I'm hitting a one or two out of 10 then tell someone early don't don't just try and deal with it yourself because I guarantee that all of your friends would much rather you have you phone them in floods of tears saying I'm struggling and I need help than somebody else calls them and say Liz is dead she killed herself last night and you know my mom had to get that phone call whenever I was in hospital saying your daughter's tried to kill herself and I know that she'd much rather I'd called her a week before and said mom I'm really struggling so you know, you are important, you matter, and you're never going to be a burden, you know, especially in the forces, it's like one big family. And we look after each other in the worst war zones in the world. And and it's a privilege and an honor to be part of that. And those people, are the same people who will look after you back here in the UK, because you're one big team. So let them, you know, be honest with them, because that's what a team is about. You've got to be honest, and you've got to 
you know, speak to each other and and communicate. And if you if you're not being honest with them, then you're you're letting the team down. So yeah. Do you find that afterwards? you had maybe friends or family members who treated you different or tiptoed around you when they were speaking to you? Yeah, I initially, um, I didn't tell a lot of people what had happened because I was almost embarrassed coming back to that thing about, you know, I thought suicide was the most like selfish thing someone could do. And I didn't really know how to explain it to myself, never mind to anyone else, how I'd got myself in that mental state. So I I didn't really want to speak to a lot of people and have to try and start to explain because I didn't know how to. And a lot of people were tiptoeing around because they knew something had happened. And, you know, we're really good at Chinese whispers here, you know, of like, well, I heard it happened like this and I heard she was on this and she was going to jump in front of a train. And I eventually, about a year later, put a statement out on my Facebook page and just said, look, you know, this is what happened a year ago and this is the exact truth. And that catharticness of just putting out there in the public for everyone to read meant that because it was a day before we had a big families day at RAF Odium which is the home of the Chinook so I knew I'd be seeing a lot of friends and just having out there in black and white for people to read and then I could see them and it almost wasn't like they didn't then know whether or not they could talk or not talk about it because I'd already put it out there for everyone to see and the same thing happened really when I wrote the book that Chinook during my PTSD recovery journey. And it was more of a cathartic exercise really of just getting all of my thoughts down onto paper. And then it kind of got published by mistake really. And I sent a friend encouraged me to send it off to some publishers and I did and, and it got published. But whenever that came out in September, the same thing happened really, you know, my story was there in black and white for people to read. And then it wasn't so taboo to talk about anymore because I could just say, this is exactly what happened. And then, people felt open enough to kind of ask me about it and talk about it. And I've had so many amazing messages about other people struggling with their mental health or PTSD since it came out. But those, yeah, there was a lot of friends who just didn't know how to approach me. And a lot of them were angry at me as well until they found out a little bit more about where your mind is when you're in that suicidal mindset. Some of them were really angry at me because they were like, why didn't you talk to me? Why didn't you phone me? Why didn't you do this? And I think it's only now that they're starting to understand themselves a bit more about mental health that they are like, I just want to give you the biggest hug in the world. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's a tough thing for anyone to talk about. But trust me, as like I said a minute ago, people would much rather you phone them and say you're struggling than someone phone them and say you're gone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the decision to sort of write the book, I guess, wasn't even a decision to write a book in the beginning. It was just a way of you going through that therapeutically absolutely the what the one of the counselors that I had from my PTSD stuff said you know I, I kept referring to myself as you know whenever I was in the air force I could do this and the Liz that was in a crewman could do this and she said look you've got to stop looking for that pre-COVID Liz because she's gone and it's like a missing persons if you're looking for a missing person and you never find the body it's more destructive than just finding a body and mourning someone who's and I was looking for this missing person constantly and she said look you know put that person to bed and let her go and as part of that she said you need to have you need to find who Liz McConaughey really is and you know it was ultimately it was the same set of eyes looking at me in the mirror that had been the 17 year old girl that wanted to join the air force 
And it was the same girl looking back at me now who was out of the Air Force and it was everything in between that had messed me up, you know, all the bit in uniform really. And so I, that's when I started to journal. I sort of went, you know, who was Liz and why did she even want to join the Air Force? And that was kind of how chapter one started and then chapter two and then it went through like that. And I say, when I started, it took me three weeks. It would just, everything just came out. And, um, and I kept on my laptop for ages before I did anything about it. So you know, if anyone's struggling with their mental health, I think writing it down is a really good thing to do. I'm not, you know, you don't have to write a book, but maybe just write yourself a letter or write your 17 year old self a letter, you know, or, you know, I find I took a lot of anger out of my mum whenever I was really struggling throughout my years. And, you know, if, if there's someone that you're taking it out on, write them a letter, even if you never give it to them, just get it out of your head and put it on paper. And it was, it was a really cathartic experience. Mm-hmm. I really liked the tone. Like it didn't feel like a formal book almost. It felt like you were just there just telling me the story. Oh, that's good to hear. A few people have said it's like having a girly chat with a side of wine. And I think, you know, a lot of military books, it's, it's quite different. You know, it's it's not a military book about guns and aircraft and war. It's a book about how those things made me feel. And, and my personal journey through all of that, you know, going from someone who was so young and naive in the Air Force to being on the front line. And then I guess, you know, coming back from the battlefields, but not really knowing what to do with myself. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a very personal journey. I do enjoy the the bits of humor injected throughout it. Oh, that's good to hear because, you know, it, it is a quite serious topic at the end, but I had the best career in the Air Force. And if I could have anything in the world, I'd have a rewind button and go back to the start and do it all again. You know, it was despite the the marks that it left on me mentally, it's also made me the person I am mentally that, you know, going forward, it's given me all the resilience that I have, you know, from that escape and evasion course and all the things that I saw in Afghanistan changed me as a person. And the, you know, the 19 year old Liz who joined all those many years ago, she is an absolutely different girl today because she's so colourful because of all those things I saw. Um, so I think the forces is a great career. And yeah, I'd, I'd definitely recommend it to anyone. What's the most important lesson that you learned throughout your long career? Oh, that's a very good question. I think teamwork. You know, I think I probably had such a successful career, certainly even being in the minority of being a female, because I was part of the team. You know, we have a saying here, I don't know if you guys have it over there, but being Jack is where you don't be part of the team. You know, you, we used to call it a Jack brew, which meant that you had gone and made yourself a brew and not everybody else, like a cup of tea or a coffee. So being a team player, you know, that's what the military thrive on. That's what, you know, that's what we live and breathe and die by, you know, that we succeed and we we fail together as a team. And it's since, you know, coming out of the overdose and coming through my PTSD journey, that, that same team have rallied around me and got me back on my feet again. And, you know, but to be in part of a team, you've got to, you know, put in as much as you take out. And I think that's where that, those months where I was struggling uh, with my mental health, I'd stop giving into the team. I'd stop telling them stuff. I'd stop, stop telling them that I was struggling. And therefore I nearly let the whole team down for good. So that's what I think is really important is be part of a team. And that's the, the best thing I've ever learned. And what's in store for future Liz? So I want to keep writing. Um, I've got a few more books in mind um, about the squadron that I served on, which was 18 squadron. I spent them, I, I did a, a couple of tours on 27 squadron. That was kind of my Iraq kind of time. But the majority of my time in the forces and certainly my Afghan journey, my my op Herrick was all on 18 squadron. So I'd like to write a story 
really for a lot of the other people that I served with, you know, I think they always they coin the phrase that everyone's got a book in them. And I do think that everyone has a voice that needs to be heard. And it's all very great, you know, hearing the stories of the, the snazzy pilots and the air crew that went across the wire and flew into the, the hail of bullets. But that aircraft doesn't magic itself into the sky. There's a whole bunch of engineers that get it airborne. And there's also the safety equipment guys that service our helmets and the armors that service the weapons. And on all those other people that were involved in that big like mechanism of war, I'd like to be able to let them have a voice as well. So I'm hoping to do something in and around that. And, and continue with my motivational speaking. I do a lot of keynote speaking now and after dinner talks and things. And and people are really, I think people are really, you know, warming to that and, you know, talking about their mental health. And certainly I know that one, one I did recently, a lot of the company now every day ask each other what their number is. So, you know, if I can make a small difference, then then it's a good thing. Yeah, it used to be, you know, it used to be so taboo. And I think in a sense, like people are still hesitant to talk about it, but it's, I, I've definitely seen changes in the last few years for sure. It's getting better. It's definitely getting better. What advice would you give to women looking to join the military and specifically, in your case, looking to work on helicopters or become crewmen? So I think go and speak, you know, go and visit, go and see people that are already doing the job. Because I think, you know, if, if, if a young females had come up and asked me whenever I was sort of going through training, you know, they would realize that it's not so daunting, it's not so scary, and you do you don't have these big, huge walls to climb over. You're just exactly the same as the rest of the lads. And, you know, some things I would be better at than they, and they wouldn't be so good at. And then some things that they would be better at than me. And that comes to like, you know, talking on the radio sometimes that they would just get it quicker than me, or I was better at navigation and everyone's got their strengths. So, but unless you go and speak to people actually doing the job, you're never going to know that. So go and talk to them because, you know, I love, I love telling people about my career because it was so much fun. So I'm sure anyone doing a job will always be enthusiastic about their their passion. So go and go and speak to them, and uh, you know, never feel like you're ever going to be made to feel like a burden because that's what the military are the best at. I think they're better than any civilian job in terms of embracing all the diversities. Where can people find you on social media, and where can people purchase your book? So I'm on Twitter as uh, at Chinichick. And I love having, like, I love chatting to people. So any new followers is always great because I love to interact with people. And uh, I'm on Instagram as uh, Chinook Crew Chick. So yeah, look me up and connect. And then I, I put uh, lots of events that I'm doing here in the UK on there. And I also do lots of online stuff now as well. So it'd be really nice to connect with some people. Perfect. I'll put a link to that in the show description. And Liz, thank you so much for your time today. I'm so excited that we got to connect. Oh, it's, you know, thank you so much for having me, Kate. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening. The biggest way to help support this podcast is to leave a rating and review on your Apple Podcasts and Spotify apps. You can also visit my Instagram page at Shoot Like a Girl Podcast to see photos from the guests, keep up to date with the podcast, and find out about any merchandise releases.